The following is a production of Government CIO Media. And welcome to GovCast. I'm Camille Tutti, Editor-in-Chief of Government CIO Media. And I'm Amanda Ziedet, Reporter with Government CIO Media. Today, I'm thrilled to have in the studio Shannon Sarton, who's the Executive Director of the U.S. Digital Service at the Health and Human Services Department. Shannon has spent the few past years helping fix government, so I'm really looking forward to her story on how she got there, all the way from Arizona, bringing her dog, daughter, and horse along. Thank you so much for joining us today, Shannon. Thanks for having me. So Shannon, you come from a family of public servant. Is that what inspired you to become a government geek as you describe yourself? You know, I think it's funny because I do come from a family who's very dedicated to public service. My mom's a physician who worked for the Indian Health Service for about 30 years. I will tell you that I think I spent most of my youth really trying hard to not be my mom. Initially, it probably was not what inspired me to join government. I think it was really more about solving hard problems and then recognizing that at some point in time, we probably evolved to become our parents unwillingly. So that was really kind of my path there. But I do think that her work that she was doing and that we were constantly talking about at home, whether it be actually being a physician on the Indian reservations, all the way into actually working in D.C. in government, in CIO roles, in technology, really definitely inspired maybe subconsciously the work that I ended up doing. So then how did you go from studying Italian at University of Arizona to the White House? It's such a funny transition. Sometimes I have a hard time telling my story because Italian feels like the random thing. So actually, I have this degree in Italian that, interestingly enough, I got because I didn't know what I wanted to study. And I had lived in Italy when I was in high school. So I actually spoke fluent Italian. This is like the ultimate college hack, right? I started at the university and somebody said to me, the only way you'll get a job is if you study a language or a hard science. And I was like, well, that's great, because I already speak a foreign <laughs> language. So I ended up studying Italian, which really translated into me studying Italian language and literature. And so it was this amazing time to just like kind of explore something and be good at it. And I really loved it. I was at the University of Arizona. And so when I left college, of course, I didn't know what to do with an Italian degree. And so a few years after leaving college, I'd spent time managing bars and doing other things. I met somebody at a bar in Seattle who happened to work for Bun which is the company that made the video game Halo. And he called me a few days later and he's like, I can't hire anybody who speaks Italian. Can you come help us? And so I ended up going to work at Bungie on Halo ODST and had this opportunity to kind of see firsthand what development looked like and really kind of fell in love with this iterative process of being creative and seeing ideas come out through technology. So that was this initial path of getting introduced to technology. And then from there, I ended up getting picked up at the time, it was 2010. The 25-point IT reform had just come out of the Obama White House. And there was this line in there that talked about a specialized cadre of IT acquisition specialists. And I happened to apply kind of on a whim to a job. I was living in Seattle at the time. And all that they wanted for you to have was like a liberal arts degree, which obviously I had. And then a little bit of software development experience, which I also happened to have. And so I ended up kind of working in this amazing role and seeing how much money was flowing out of government. And I just remember being like, holy shit, this is millions and millions of dollars that these companies that aren't even delivering great services are managing to get from the government and being really inspired to figure out, like, how do we do this better? And so that was kind of like this initial introduction to government. And as I referenced earlier, 
You drove across the country with your dog, your daughter, and horse. How's the horse doing on the East Coast now? Um, so that horse is loving East Coast life. He went from <laughs> living in dirt pastures to being surrounded by grass. So he's gotten pretty fat these days, also because I don't have a lot of time to ride. But yeah, I've lived in D.C. before. And when I lived here, I remember feeling I left horses at home. I left my dog at home. I remember feeling a little isolated from this life that I grew up with. And so when I decided to move out here again, I realized working at the White House and probably a high stress job, I would go crazy if I didn't have the things that were my outlets or my grounding spaces. And horses are one of them for me. So I threw him on the trailer. I think it took me about four days to get out here driving about, who knows, probably like 12 hours a day or something like that, which was amazing and fun. And so it's been an adventure moving across the country, bringing my kid, being a single parent and having responsibilities like animals definitely adds a different element of chaos to life. Also kind of keeps it interesting and makes it life worth living, right? And then you applied to be part of the U.S. Digital Service. And I read in one of the posts that you have on Medium that when it came to writing down your skill set, you said making shit happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, I have this really interesting background of being a generalist, and I think it took me a long time to figure out what that term meant and whether or not it added value to an organization. People don't typically write a job post that just says be really good or decent at a lot of things. And so I didn't really understand how to talk about what I knew. So I knew that I knew about procurement. I knew that I knew a little bit about product. I know a little bit about engineering on a very light level, a little bit about design, and a lot about how to organize things and how to make sure that things actually happen. Like I'm very action positive. If something's happening around me, I'm always leaning into making something happen, making something work. And so I filled out that box and I remember thinking, because at the time it was still like White House talk of slash USDS, but I wasn't even conscious that I was writing that. And I remember clicking send and being like, oh my God. What did I just do? You know, is there going to be some sort of backlash from me putting the word shit in my application to the White House? I think it must have caught somebody's attention because I heard back pretty quickly. Yeah, those are the stories we hear of like people sending one liners on their college application essays and they get in. But I feel like if I were to ever do that, it would never work. So that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, we could do some A-B testing and see what that's happens. <laughs> just send some in. I wanted to ask real quick. So what were you doing at Halo? Did you use your Italian degree there or were you? I did. So basically what had happened was they pulled through in the game a lot of the translations that had been done in the first few games, right? But what happens is like contextually there end up being cultural implications or things around the actual translation itself and whether or not it works. And so ironically enough, I like can't play video games. So I remember having to have somebody play the video game through for me so I could double check issues where I'd had to flag for language related things. You know, I didn't work there for that long. Actually, an important thing to talk about is I was one of probably like five women in a room of like 100 guys. And I remember consistently feeling uncomfortable and feeling it was just a weird environment at the time. And so my bartending life in Seattle, I think, paid me more money. So, of course, I was like <laughs> going to leave this job where I felt uncomfortable as a woman showing up every day and go back to that. Your degree really did kind of get you into the software tech yeah, In kind of accidentally. Yeah. Like it definitely did, right? Yeah. And I think people who are bilingual or speak multiple languages interact with reality a little bit differently, right? Like the way that we digest the things that are happening around us is framed by language. You're either limited by it or you've got a little bit of extra capacity because you've got other words to describe things. And I definitely think that my language ability has helped me in problem solving, has helped me in really understanding how to frame 
um, the different sets of things that are happening, especially when it comes to technology, right? I can definitely attest to that as a Swede who also is fluent in Finnish. So we have a different kind of thinking when it comes to everything, especially problem solving. Yeah. So you have a deep personal passion for the intersection of healthcare and tech. Where does that come from? What does it mean to you? So that actually ties directly back to my mom. You know, I grew up with a physician turned informaticist for a mom who was really deeply committed to seeing healthcare get better in populations that are traditionally neglected. Just these underserved populations where as technology or access to care is advancing for the rest of the country is falling behind in these really rural areas. And I remembered hearing stories when I was little about things like measles outbreaks and it being caught by the first electronic health record that was implemented in 86 in the hospital that she worked in an Indian health service, and they would catch some sort of outbreak that was happening or be able to use algorithms to identify who in the community needed immunizations to make sure that they could stop things that were happening. And hearing those stories, I was always inspired by this idea that you could use technology to make care better and that without technology, we would actually also miss out on a lot of those opportunities. Like I, as one person, can only remember so much about the people I'm serving. But if I have access to back data on the population? Can I identify trends? Can I figure out ways to make care better? And so I think it started there. And then my first government job was actually at Indian Health Service, that IT cadre. I remember the first day I started, the person that I was supposed to be working for was out for a week. I didn't know anything about government contracting. I didn't know what the FAR was. I didn't know what any of the acronyms they were throwing at me were. And I ended up in this interesting position where I just started researching the systems that they had. And at the time, they had just deployed a new population health module that allowed physicians to basically pull population level data in specific communities. So like I could pull every woman over the age of 65 to see whether or not they had been screened for breast cancer or any of the other factors. And it was really interesting for me to just kind of start to wrap my brain around this idea that we could use all this data to solve hard problems in healthcare. So when it comes to bringing innovation into HHS, which has a ton of challenges, I'm sure. What are some of the obstacles you've had to overcome there? I would say the biggest ones are cultural and policy or bureaucracy related, right? That is cultural at the end of the day, too. When you walk into a space where there's a ton of subject matter experts who have had to exist in large bureaucracies and do things like air quotes the way we've always done them, it's hard to get people to want to think about things differently, especially when it comes to acquisition or contracts or project management or new technologies to help them manage an old problem. We get stuck a lot in this idea of, I can't do that. That's too scary. It's too risky. We don't have enough money. The procurement's going to be too hard. And so we spend a lot of time kind of having to bring people's ideas into like a different light almost and help them work through the bureaucratic issues to make sure that they can see new solutions that are potentially available for them. And I think It also means removing some of the barriers. There's no shortage of brilliant people in government, right? It's that they don't have access to even the space to think in this innovative way about how to solve their problems because they're just constantly trying to get the stack of paperwork in front of them done. So when you start to elevate voices and you start to have conversations that there are other ways to do things, you get into this new space around innovation, which is like people are willing to really invest in looking at new opportunities. What would you say is your most rewarding project to date? Every time somebody asks me this, I'm like, well, which one is it? I would say that right now it's actually probably we launched something called Blue Button 2.0 or it's a Medicare claims API. And I think 
The technology itself is not crazy, right? Like it's an API, <laughs> it uses claims data. The team that worked on it on the U.S. Digital Service side and on the CMS side did an amazing job pulling it all together and making it a real product that was packaged kind of the same way we would in industry. I think the reason why it's the most rewarding one for me is that it's the first step towards getting the data that physicians need to deliver value-based care out there. And that is something that we've just struggled to do. Like this was a project that sat on the shelf at CMS for almost two years. Like this is, again, not a new idea. It's just one that was kind of stuck in the bureaucracy. And it took us coming in and shining a light on it to really elevate it. But it is, it's just the first step. It's just giving claims data in an electronic format to beneficiaries. We want to expand that even more, right? Like, how do I get that data to researchers? How do we get it to physicians? How do I make sure that people can use it at point of care? So I think that that one for me is probably the most rewarding right now. So when it comes to projects kind of stuck in that red tape and bureaucracy, do you have one initiative, like a dream initiative that you would like to take on next? The answer is yes, and we are actually taking it on. We have not started talking about it publicly yet, but it is, again, in the spirit of value-based care, talking about the data you need to figure out how to pay for value-based care, how to actually empower the market to deliver value-based care. So we are doing it. I hope that one day we all get to talk about it, maybe on another podcast with the rest of the team. But it was interesting because it's a pretty technically hairy problem. It was also a very bureaucratically entrenched issue where people have been talking about solving this problem for like 20 plus years and nobody could figure out how to do it. And finally, my whole team was like, all right, it's time. Let's do it. We're really scared. This is really scary. This is like a huge thing to do. And I think we finally found that one. We've been involved in it for about four months. And I think probably in the next two months or so, we'll start talking about it publicly. How do you work with people in government who have less experience when it comes to technology and IT? It kind of depends on the person and like what their engagement with a specific project is. Our team has really taken this mentality that we are probably only as good as our government counterparts are when it comes to delivering a project, in part because we're all term employees. None of us are going to be there forever. If we're building any sort of product that they can't maintain long term, then we've failed to do our jobs. So I think for us, it's really about doing a couple of things like identifying the right skill sets. And they don't have to be highly technical, right? Maybe they're great at problem solving. Maybe they understand how the bureaucracy works. Maybe they just understand the underlying subject matter really well and really elevating them and putting them into positions where they can be empowered. We spend a lot of time doing that, like identifying great traits in people and making sure that they're in the right roles. So I think when it comes to technology, too, we also do a lot of just introductions to basic things that people should know as they're moving through modern technology development projects. So speaking about government services, you had an experience at the DMV that made your blood boil and you encouraged people to find ways to fix the problems they encounter with government services. So what were some of your recommendations? It's interesting. And the story is kind of funny because it involves an issue with a technical system. So I went to register my car and I have a P.O. box and an address that are in two different zip codes. And apparently you can't have two different zip codes in this system for your mailing address and your permanent address. I ended up giving them a fake address, by the way. <laughs> but um, <laughs> my recommendations for this, I think, were really important because I got to the end of this process and I sat on my couch and I remember feeling so angry and being like, I don't even have anybody to tell. Like, who do I complain to? I can't call their manager. Like, I asked to talk to the manager and the woman said no. And so I realized that working in government, I understand the different pressure points that you can put on. So some of my recommendations for people are like, one, to send as many emails as you can with specific acknowledgement of the problem that you're having. They need that feedback in order to make changes. 
I always make recommendations about the attorney general. <laughs> All the attorney generals probably get way too many emails from me because I don't know who else to email. It's a great pressure point. They though. respond to you? I think the attorney general did. And then so did the governor's office, actually. So I emailed the governor's office and I was like, this is insane. This has to be fixed. You cannot expect for people to continue to engage and feel like they've got faith in our democracy. If this is what we're having to deal with. I talk about this a lot, actually, because your most frequent engagements with government are probably local and state. And it's stuff like the DMV. And it's the most painful process. And of course, people are frustrated with government. Of course, they want to see the entire system change because those are the services that are being delivered. You know, I think some of my other recommendations are around commenting. The majority of agencies are putting out regulation on a regular basis. If you have a feeling about it, we create opportunities to comment on them. We should feel free to do that. I also always recommend running for public office. Doing a stint as a federal employee. Yeah, like if you want to be engaged, you should be engaged. I think people feel like there is some crazy high barrier to entry to either run for office or be in some sort of civil service program. There's not. We're all just regular people who have great ideas about the way to make government better. And all of us have to deal with it every day. What do you think you'll be doing after your term is up? Are you staying in government? Are you thinking about going back to private industry? anything else. I probably spend too much time thinking about that these days. I don't know. I keep waiting to find something that makes me feel as impactful as I do right now. And I haven't found it yet. I've spent time in and out of government. And I actually really believe that you do not make government better just by staying inside. I think that you have to go back outside. I think you have to recognize that 50% of the problem we have is with contractors needing to also improve their services that they give to the government. And so I'm sure I'll end up back in private industry after this just to take a breather. But I have no doubt that in my career, I'll end up back in the federal government again in some capacity. You should run for office. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You're not the first one to say that. (laughs) Maybe one day. You know, when it comes to efficacy, I struggle because I want to do the work. I don't know that I want to sit on the hill and be the face. There's still a disconnect between politicians and the implementation. I think we see that a lot. So maybe I'll be somewhere in between. Is USDS going anywhere new in the next year or two? I mean, in terms of their direction or the technology they want to help agencies use or innovate? You know, I think our mission is always the same. It's delivering better services to the American people. I think I can't speak for the for our organization mm-hmm. as a whole. I think there's always opportunities to grow. I think there's always new projects to work on. I think there's always shit that catches on fire. People kind of sometimes wait for the next healthcare.gov, right? Like, what's it going to be? It's inevitable. It's going to happen again. And I think that that may end up triggering wherever U.S. Digital Service goes next. I think we're not big on pushing crazy new technology. Like, we're definitely not talking about the blockchain. <laughs> we're definitely not talking about... <laughs> I saw you, you know. <laughs> post on LinkedIn something like... <laughs> Blockchain is not the answer. (laughs) With all the hand clapping emojis. (laughs) I definitely did that. You know, I think it's important to just recognize that the problems we're trying to solve are usually some combination of process, the most basic fundamental technologies, and human-centered design. And if you can't get those three things right, you have no business using blockchain. You have no business using any crazy new technology to solve a problem that should be solved with like a CRM system and a couple of user researchers. So how do you respond to those people when they come to you and say, oh, blockchain is the answer. We need to implement AI. So my predecessor, Mina Shang, used to always use a question, which was, what are you actually trying to achieve here? And it's something that I think everybody on our team falls back on a lot. Like, What is the problem you're trying to solve? And usually if you can get people to back down from 
having found the solution or putting the cart in front of the horse, they can come back to this place where they recognize they're solving the wrong problem. If you're looking back at your experience in government, do you have an anecdote about the most challenging thing that you had to overcome? Yeah, actually, it was before U.S. Digital Service, so I'm going to go back to my kind of first spot as a federal employee, which was I was a contracting officer for three years. And over that time period, it became apparent to me that I was very ambitious and that I really wanted to do more and I wanted to solve hard problems. And I, like anybody else, wanted to also be rewarded for doing hard work. And in government, that's not how it works. So I worked on a team of about three people and we were all very different pay grades. I was very young. It was very entry level. And as my coworkers would leave, their workloads would shift to me. And so it ended up being just me with the workload that had been handled by three other people. And I had a boss who had been really supportive of me for a number of years, had retired, and I had somebody new in front of me who just, she did everything that she could to just make my life miserable. And I remember hitting this point at the end and I quit. Like I called my boss and I said, I'm done. I'm leaving in two weeks. And he said, do you have another job? I was like, well, no, and I don't care. I remember in that moment also thinking, I'm the kind of person that you should be wanting to keep in government, that you should be figuring out how to incentivize to stay. And I think that there's this opportunity specifically for people in leadership to continue looking for opportunities to kind of elevate the voices of people who are kind of that same personality, right? Somebody who's ambitious, who wants to do good, who wants to show up and consistently get better. I take meetings with random people from CMS all the time who are like, I just want to talk about career things. Like, what should I do next? And literally pulling them into projects and being like, hey, so-and-so, I met this one person. They seem really great. You should detail them over. And I've done it with like four or five people have just kind of pulled them over because I think if in government we continue to treat talent the way that we do, it's one of the reasons why it's so bad and it's not going to get better. And you mentioned that you're trying to solve or you want to solve some of the toughest problems. So what are some of those problems that are yet unsolved that you would want to work on? So my biggest one right now is actually it's this intersection of government and the implementation of legislation. I've been actually trying to figure out how you can create a more agile or iterative regulatory process. One of the things that we struggle with a lot when it comes to technology is that when you try to put regulation around it, by the time the regulatory process is done, you're like two years behind. You can never get in front of it. And so there's this struggle with a lot of the way that the legislation is written or the way that the actual implementation of it has to be done that I think I'm spending a few hours a day like just trying to kind of pull it all apart. And I think that that's one that I hope other people are looking at as well is just the regulatory process. How do we make it more iterative? How do we adapt it for technology? If you want to put in place regulation around technology, which is likely coming post GDPR, right? Like Mm -hmm. I think there's stuff that's going to come down the pike. We have to do it in a way that makes sense for industry and also for government. So that's definitely one of the toughest ones. I think the other piece for me is actually just getting rid of the extra bullshit. Like you dig through agencies all the time and somebody told me about a program today that is happening at one operating division at HHS that's also happening at like two other ones. And I was like, why are we doing this? So figuring out a way to kind of remove duplicative efforts or kill programs that aren't effective. Like we need OKRs for government. We need to really be talking about how we define what our objectives are, what the key results are that we're looking for. And we haven't figured out how to do that yet. We instead just like live in this culture of like reaction and fear. And those are like really complicated problems. There's no technical solution for either of those. Well, the issues that you brought up with the regulatory process kind of seem like those that people have with the procurement process. And that's one that you are familiar with. So yeah, 
process kind of similar for how you want to make that iterative or agile, I guess? The difference in the procurement process is there's more gray area. And I'm not an expert in this space. I've been relying on other people who are. There's not as much gray area. It seems to be much more black or white. I actually think what will end up coming out of it is like some recommendations that hopefully somebody will print somewhere for me and get read by the right people. Procurement, again, is this very just like hyper burdened process where you're trying to follow all these rules and sometimes you lose sight of the thing you're even trying to accomplish, right? Like I'm now just checking boxes and going through the process. I'm not even thinking about whether or not it's effective. And I think that happens in bureaucracy. Like we get so far away from the spirit of the thing we tried to put in place. So what would you say are your best tips for your government counterparts who want to cut through that bullshit? There's a couple of really important ones. The first one is to be very action-oriented. So if there's something that needs to get done, make sure you're doing it. I think the other piece too is really about questioning everything. If you're doing something and you're sitting at your desk questioning whether or not this adds value or why it's important, question where it came from. We hear a lot about people referencing, like I call it like water cooler policy. It's like something that someone 10 years ago said, this is a policy that exists and now everybody's following it. We ask for a lot of stuff in writing, like tell me where it actually says that you can't do this thing. And so I think that's an important piece. Like if you want to cut through the bullshit, you have to figure out what the bullshit is. And so I think constantly questioning it and really going back and doing research is important. And I also think too, the government has this chain of command culture that I hope is starting to go away a little. But I think like the freshest eyes always see the problems the clearest. So there's this important piece about one for leadership, being willing to listen to people who are on your team who may be coming in and having a new idea or seeing something differently. And then also for people who are coming in new to really be comfortable raising those ideas. You have to be comfortable saying, I don't understand why we're doing this. What if we tried this? And if we don't create a culture where that's a comfortable thing for people to do, we're going to have a problem. And I think that that really ties back into this idea of being action oriented. Like if you are not forward leaning, if you aren't constantly moving, constantly looking to adapt, if you aren't willing to kind of stick your neck out and do something because it needs to get done, it just won't. It'll never change. Shannon, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. It's been really, really fun to hear about your work and your background. And how can listeners reach you? I am newly on Twitter, so feel free to follow me at Sartan underscore Shannon. Thanks so much for having me, guys. This episode is sponsored by Lumina. Lumina's mission is to use AI systems to protect the world. To learn more about the company, visit its website at luminaanalytics.com. I really loved having Shannon on the show. It was super fascinating to learn how a degree in Italian got her a job at Halo, which ultimately led to this career in IT, software, government, and to the White House. I also love that she had such an unconventional path into government and how she got that job at USDS by writing that her skill set was making shit happen. I mean, you don't see that on a, <laughs> normally on a job application. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's pretty crazy that she drove across the country with her dog, horse and daughter when she first got her job at the White House. So her story is pretty incredible. And it sounds like all four of them are doing really well on the East Coast. We're really excited to see where Shannon goes next after her term ends at USDS. Whether it's in government or the private sector. I'm Amanda Ziede. I'm Camille Tudy. 
Thanks for listening to GovCast. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media. It's produced by Tracy Madigan and edited by Rob Ford. Our theme music is provided by Big Hoax. Our executive producer is Michael Hoffman. If you're interested in sponsoring GovCast, you can email Andy Andrews at randrews at governmentcio.com. Andrews at